A reading from Jeremiah, chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty. Disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The word of the Lord. Now, as we absorb God's word, Jesus be with you. In the Lawrence Kasdan film, Grand Canyon, Kevin Klein plays an immigration attorney who's fed up with Los Angeles traffic. And so one particular afternoon, he decides to take a shortcut through some Los Angeles neighborhoods. The problem is he does not know these neighborhoods. The worst problem is his expensive sports car breaks down. He quickly calls for a tow truck, but before the tow truck arrives, the car is surrounded by some um, gang members in, in this particular uh, neighborhood. Just as the gang members are beginning to threaten Klein's character, the tow truck pulls up and out tops the driver, played by Danny Glover, an earnest and genteel man. He begins to hook the car up to the tow truck. Soon, the gang members are surrounding him. So Danny Glover pulls one of the, uh, what he perceives to be the leader of the gang aside and gives the best five-sentence explanation of metaphysical reality I've ever heard from Hollywood. Man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. Life ain't supposed to work 
this way. Put it in the form of a question. What's wrong with us? Put in the form of a personal question on that day when you've again lost your temper with your child or your spouse or your coworker. What's wrong with me? When you've scarfed down that donut in the workroom when no one was looking. When you came home again from the store having spent money on things you don't need and can't afford. What's wrong with me? When your mind is filled again with fantasies of intimacies with a stranger or a coworker, what's wrong with me? When your friend shares with you the highlights of their vacation or their upcoming promotion, all that you feel inside is anger. What's wrong with me? Or when you realize driving home from a gathering or a party that all the conversations you engaged in, you somehow pointed them back to you. What's wrong with me? I don't know about you, Waterstone, but I think it's time for a preaching series on the seven deadly sins. Are you ready for darkness and guilt and shame? Here we go. Here we go. We get two questions asked whenever we preach a series on the seven deadly sins. By the way, this is the second time we've preached this series. The first time was back in the year 2000. And if some of you remember that series, you are old. That's all I can say about that. The first question is, what are the seven deadly sins? And by that, I don't mean the list. We all kind of know what the list is. But where did this list come from? How did this list come into to being? And let me walk through some church history. First, I see biblical precedent for a list of sins. They're all through the scriptures. You have in passages of scriptures where certain lists are, uh, of sin are given. And the primary purpose is that you know, part of our spiritual growth is to look at Jesus and what he's done for us and his grace in our lives and move towards him. But part of our spiritual growth is to take hard looks on our heart and do some evaluation. It's like a garden, right? What's the secret to a good garden? You know, there's the sun, there's the water, but there's also this thing called weeds. Part of gardening in order to have produce, part of flower beds in order to have beauty is to weed the garden. So we're gonna be pulling out some weeds. But um, the, the, the list, that, that's why those lists, of, I was going to mention the one in Proverbs chapter 6 where the Lord says, there are six things that I hate, seven things that I find despicable. And then he lists those things and most of them made the list of the, this deadly sin. So you have these lists in scriptures for us to do evaluation. This particular list, and it's called the seven deadly sins, began around the third century with a group of sisters and brothers who were pursuing the Lord with all their heart. But they had this theology where they thought most of the struggle with sins that we have comes from our social environment. So the way to become holy and more like Jesus is to withdraw from the uh, social environment and live in caves and live in the desert. And so these early monks did that. 
Well, imagine their surprise when they found out that even though they lived in a cave in the desert, there was still sin disrupting their relationship with God and with one another. What they learned is a valuable lesson, that everywhere we go, sin follows. Because the reason that we sin is not just our social environment, but even more, it's what's on our inside. It's the fallenness and the brokenness of the human heart. But, so they began to preach in their communities, the monks, uh, these certain messages. There was a reporter, I'll call him a journalist by the name of John Cassian, who was not a monk himself, but was writing down the messages of the Desert Fathers, and then he would distribute these messages to the wider circle of the church. And it was John Cassian who first made us aware of this kind of list of these seven deadly sins. They called them deadly because the idea was once these sins got a hold of you, like lust or anger, the consequences where those sins would lead you were often devastating. They would eat you up from the inside out, and you'd find yourself in places you never dreamed you'd be because the power of these sins got a hold of you. Deadly. It's like uh, one of the books I was reading on uh, 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 talked about it as a metaphor of like a toboggan. You know, we're in, the, in July. Let's think about uh, uh, January a little bit here. And when it snows, you know, that first run with the toboggan is kind of slow, kind of rough. You have to pack down the snow. But what happens after four or five toboggan runs? Man, you get a path there that's slick and fast. And even more, you get a path there that with a simple toboggan, you can't steer. You are at the complete mercy of the path wherever it goes. That's the idea of deadly once you're in that path, it is difficult to get out. Around the 13th century, another uh, brilliant theologian, Catholic scholar by the name of Thomas Aquinas preached a series of messages on the seven deadly sins. And he called them the seven cardinal sins, or you'll, you'll see the word capital sins. It's from the Latin word caput, which literally means hinge. And Aquinas' teaching was that each of these seven sins is a hinge or a door into all the other sins we commit. In other words, you stop in a moment when you realize you've committed a sin, and probably that sin is somehow in its ancestry related to one of these seven sins. So this is the, this is the bloodstream here. This is the ancestry of all sin. It goes back to one of these seven things. So... That's the seven deadly sins. We continue to preach them. I think it's kind of cool that we're going to be doing this mess, series of messages again, just as they did in the third century. We are all one family. But the question is, what do we hope to accomplish? What are the outcomes that we're looking for as a result of this series? At the end of it, what do we hope to see? The first thing I'd say that after spending eight weeks preaching the seven deadly sins, I hope that sin becomes worse to us. Worse. We realize that our identity is that of a baptized Christian plunged into Christ, raised to new life. We are a child of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens and strangers in this world, which means that when we sin, it is a traumatic experience. Let me illustrate. 
Paul had a traumatic experience when realizing sin in Romans chapter 7. He had just written to the Roman church about all the greatness of Christ in providing salvation for us. But in chapter 7 he reveals, but he still struggles with sin. And he says in this classic passage, those things that I don't want to do, I do. And those things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. And then he says, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Sin was a traumatic experience for the apostle. Is sin a traumatic experience for you? To realizing what Jesus has done for us? How casual are we with our sin? I hope that sin becomes worse through these next weeks. And as sin becomes worse to us, we will find that Jesus becomes better to us. Better. We realize that our hearts are made to treasure Jesus Christ. They're built with a hole that only he can fit into. We realize that the human heart aches for his love and forgiveness and freedom. We realize, as the Westminster Catechism says, we were made to glorify God and enjoy him for ever. Our heart was made to see Jesus and to live in the light of his glory. But when we sin and it goes unchecked, it's like putting pieces of scotch tape over your glasses. Pretty soon, with each sin, you can't see Jesus and his brightness and brilliance as you did. And you can't see everything else in your life as clearly either. Because every sin is like a tape on the piece of glass. I hope that this series, I hope that we're able to take some of the scotch tape off our glasses and see Jesus again, his beauty, his brilliance, and the kind of life that he leads us to. Are you ready? Our passage is in Jeremiah 2, and with the remaining time, I want to kind of set the table. Next week, we'll start with uh, the sin of pride. And by the way, you might be thinking, I, you know, I could under, this is understandable that, oh man, eight weeks of darkness and shame? No. Well, let me explain how we're going to do it. This might help. Every week, we're going to see the, the sin, whatever it is. So next week, pride. We're going to see it in a, in a story from the Bible, the great King Nebuchadnezzar and one of the classic moments of pride in all of human history. So we'll tie it to a story which will be fun and interesting. And then we're going to give the antidote to each sin. So there'll be something positive and challenging. What's the antidote to pride? Humility. So we'll talk about humility next week. And then we realize that for every antidote, all of the antidote and our ability to live out humility, for instance, comes from the gospel, from the way our hearts been transformed and changed because of the cross. We love because we've first been loved first, and so we spend time each week in the gospel. So I guess I'm saying it won't be that bad. All right? It's going to be fun. As fun as the seven deadly sins can be. Jeremiah chapter 2. I wanted to just set the table with a little bit of sin, understanding what sin is. Some background, Jeremiah is a priest, a 
pastor who's preaching to his people as they sit about 10 or 20 years from the worst day of their history. The nation of Judah is about to be invaded by Nebuchadnezzar and carried off into exile and captivity. Israel as a nation ceases to exist. It's a dark, dark day. And the people around Jeremiah are asking, you know, our psyches are breaking down, our families are breaking down, our society's coming apart. What's wrong with us? And Jeremiah is going to answer that question. And he's going to answer it with a 37-verse sermon on sin that I actually want to encourage you, even challenge you, to read this week all of Jeremiah chapter 2. It's one of the most majestic sermons in the Old Testament. And it's about sin. I think it boils down, and in the interest of time, we're going to boil it down to one verse, which is the big idea. It's actually the half of verse 19. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. We see in this verse what sin is. First, sin is denial. Denial. Consider and realize how evil and bitter it is for you. One of the great Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, says that when the prophets speak like this, it's the language of intervention. Have you ever been called to do an intervention with someone? A friend of yours calls up and says, boy, my spouse, there's this behavior going on and they are wrecking our relationship, they're wrecking their health, they're wrecking their job. I'm trying to get some people together and we wanna show up at such and such a time and we're gonna do an intervention. Have you ever had to do one? Yeah, what, how do you talk when you're in an intervention? Have you considered what you're doing? This behavior that you're participating in? Do you understand how dark and desperate this is? This is very hurtful behavior. Don't you realize that if you keep going on this path, you are going to lose your marriage, lose your kids, you're gonna lose your life, you're gonna be in trouble. Realize, wake up. It's, this is the language of intervention. And the question is, why does God have to use the language of intervention with his people? Why does he have to do an intervention? Because we have become, or we have a propensity to become blind to sin. There's a, what Tim Keller calls a force field around sin. It's a protective barrier that often keeps us from seeing it or owning it. Sin is denial. And we remember that the scriptures say that it's, it's not fatal to be a sinner. Now we know the wages of sin is death, but to be a sinner, God gives a remedy, right? Jesus. So it's not fatal to be a sinner. It's fatal to deny that you're a sinner. That's where even the grace of God does not penetrate when we deny that we're a sinner. Luther, it's the 500th year of uh, Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis in the Wittenberg Doors. We're reading a lot of Luther. I came read about the one message he preached, arguably his most famous message, where he talks that we should sin boldly. What did Luther mean by that? Not that we should go out and live like there's no God and just sin all the time. He said, God does not save fictitious sinners. He saves real sinners. What's a real sinner? A real sinner is someone who owns it and lets everyone else know about it in order to prompt growth and repentance. 
And Luther said it, repentance is the meaning of the Christian life from A to Z, the beginning and the end. It's always repentance. And part of repentance is being open with our sin, not being a fictitious sinner, a real sinner. There is no help for those who will not admit their need for help. So Luther says, sin boldly. The idea is that it's hard to do because sin has this force field of denial around it. So where do we see this force field? Well, I think we see it at two levels. Culturally or corporately, we see it in our world all the time. We, uh, especially around climactic moments in human history, a spirit of optimism moves in and we start, well, actually here in America, it's every two years. What we hear politicians speak is this. Well, if we just have dynamic sociology plus efficient government, plus technological additives, we can fix all our problems and bring paradise, save ourselves. In politicians speak, it's better jobs, better schools, better government, more technology. Every single convention speech, is that's the template. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that those things are not part of the kingdom of God and we should work our butts off for those things. We should. But if we think those things are what's going to bring us salvation and a new heavens and a new earth, history proves us very wrong. And even though you vote the bums out again in two years, do you think you're going to bring in the kingdom of God by voting the bums out again? I don't think so. Sin is denial. You know, funny, uh, funny illustration of it. I, I, I mentioned that often it's at, either when we enter a new century or when we have a climactic moment in history, everyone gets optimistic that we're now going to be free from a lot of these problems. One classic example is H.G. Wells. After the First World War, which, by the way, was nicknamed, do you remember, the War to end all wars. After everything was put back together, H.G. Wells writes in A Short History of the World, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any place or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done the little triumphs of his present state form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do? Yay! Nine years later, after the second world war, H.G. Wells writes, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things seem well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. Boo. Wow. On a corporate level, the denial of sin we think we can fix the environment, change the environment, and we'll be free and saved. But we have this force field around the denial of where the true problem lies, and the true problem is the human heart and what can change a human heart. We see it at a corporate level. We see it on an individual level. 
How do we deny sin as individuals? Two ways. First, we tend to underestimate the power of sin. We underestimate its power. We think that sin is a live wire, God's law is a live wire, and it has a plastic coating. As long as we're holding onto that plastic coating, we're safe. But at some point in time, we will get to the end of that wire, and sin will jolt us. And I have proof of this almost every week in my office. People will come in and sit down, and we'll have this discussion, and it always goes something like this. Well, you know, I believe in God, and I believe in the Ten Commandments. I do. But... Larry, you really expect me in this economy to be completely transparent and honest about all of my finances? Doesn't God want me to provide for my family and get a little bit ahead in this world? I want to say in the back of my head, I don't, he does. We really think we can mess around with a live wire called the law of God and not suffer consequences? Or I often hear it this way, Larry, you know, the average age now for a single person to get married is like 28, 29. You really expect me to be sexually pure until I'm married? You think that's what God wants for me? Doesn't he want me to have any pleasure, any happiness? You expect me to be sexually pure until I get married? And again, I'm thinking, not me, him. But in the very next sentence, but I've been living with this person and we're breaking up and it's wrecked my heart. Not to mention I have a sexually transmitted disease. We think that we can play around and be casual with the law of God and not get jolted. We underestimate the power of sin. We overestimate our power to resist it. Some of you came in here this morning, again, dragging that deadly sin that's got you depressed, discouraged. It's a secret thing. No one knows about it but you. But it's pulling you down. It's eating you up. The thought has even crossed your mind this morning that maybe, you know, when Nick or Larry, when they call the Stephen ministers and elders forward, maybe I should go down and pray. But I know that's for bad and broken people. But, but maybe I should. Because this thing's eating me up. But the very next thought is, oh, no, I can do it. I can do it. I'll, I'll take communion today. A new start. I'll suck it up. I'll clear the search history, and I'll do it this week. You overestimate yourself. The church exists not for people to sit in secret and in silence, struggling with sin. The church exists for people to sin boldly and not be a fictitious sinner, but to lean on other believers, as Bonhoeffer said, you will have moments in your life when you need the word of Christ from another brother or sister because that word in them is stronger than it is in you today. We need each other and we need the great discipline of confession in order to break the secret hold and power of sin.
So we tend to deny sin. We think human solutions to human problems can change our world. We often think that we underestimate sin and we're stronger than we really are, but we are not as strong as we think we are. That's denial in general. Sin in particular goes even deeper. These dispositions, these tendencies, these temperaments in us, they're much more about what Jeremiah says at the end of the verse. By the way, I've asked Alan to keep this verse up, as you may have noticed, because I hope you're memorizing it. For this series, someone asks you, what is sin? We're talking about sin, what is sin? I hope you can quote some of this verse. I would encourage you now even to tune me out a little bit and memorize this verse. This is an exceptional verse. Talks about the denial of sin, but it goes on, when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. If you were to ask me for a simple two-word definition of what sin is, no awe. That tendency, those dispositions in us that cause us not to have awe for God but to have awe for everything else. You see, God, he is interested that we lie, we steal, we cheat, we, we lust. He's interested in those, but he even asks a deeper question, and we don't often like to go there with him. Do you know what the question God is really interested in? Why do we lie, steal, cheat, lust? And do you know the answer to that question? It's hard. But the answer to that question is because at that moment that we choose to sin, we are in more awe of that thing than we are of God. We have a hole in our heart. We are always trying to fill it. And we're choosing one of the seven deadly sins at any one point in time to fill that hole because we hold that in more awe than we hold God. That's the bottom line. Let's unpack this idea of awe then. What does it mean to have awe of God? Well, in the Hebrew, the actual word is fear. And just like in English, fear can be a negative fear or terror, or fear can be a positive thing of respect and delight. So when we talk about fear as terror, what fear really means is the anticipation of pain. When something appears in our life, a source of fear, uh, we fear that it's gonna hurt. Uh, I've been hiking uh, for 25 years in Colorado, and last summer I had my first. My friend Kevin and I were hiking up above Nederland, 20 yards up on the trail. Kevin and I were just chit-chatting like men do. Not really. <laughs> but I feel this hand on my shoulder. Kevin was behind me. We stop. I look up, and 20 yards ahead of me, on the path, some of you are sitting 20 yards from me. I can still see you. A bear. We startled him. We stopped. He stands up. Did I say it was a big bear? It was a really big bear. We all know there's only black bears in Colorado, but this was a golden brown bear, and it was big. It was probably no more than 30 seconds that it stood there. We got our whistles out, took our backpacks off. We were jumping, screaming, whistling. 
I could preach 30 sermons on the thoughts of theology that went through my head <laughs> in that 30 seconds. And then there was these other kind of seven deadly sins thoughts, like, how fast can Kevin run? <laughs> when was the last time I climbed a tree? I mean, amazing thoughts go through your mind in 30 seconds. But evidently the bear thought, if that's the show, it's not worth any admission fee. And so he bends back over and he walks to our left off the trail. We stay there. He walks around us and then back on the trail. Here's the thing, though. After an experience like that, perhaps some of you have had that experience. I'm guessing some of you have. Maybe it's a snake. The thing is, we, we're still three miles from the trailhead. So we keep walking. I'm in the front, Kevin in the back. And what was amazing is that everywhere I looked, there was a dead branch that looked like a bear. <laughs> Every step revolved around a bear. Bear, bear. <laughs> and poor Kevin, because the bear went back on the trail, about every 50 yards, he was looking back, and we got to this point where there was a little ledge, and he walked off the ledge and jammed his shoulder. He's okay. Every step was a bear step for the rest of that hike. Last week, Jan and I were hiking up in the Gore Range, and an unleashed black lab came around the path, and I freaked. I'm still in recovery. I mean, it just messes you up. Every step is brown. That's terror. That's fear. But there's good fear, right? There's good fear. The scriptures talk about good fear this way. Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. The fear of the Lord is pure, cleansing, enduring forever. What's good fear? Good fear is when our heart is totally captured by the magnitude of who God is and what he's done for us. And so every step becomes a bearing of his glory, a bare step of his glory. It totally soaks into our life such that every step we take is just full of God. We let him into every part of our life. So there's contrast, right? Negative fear is mainly about self-preservation, but positive fear releases you to something bigger than yourself. Negative fear is about enslavery. What's gonna happen? Positive fear is about freedom with someone who's bigger and stronger and who loves you and provides for you. But here's what they both have in common. You will never be the same person after you've experienced that fear. So what does it mean to have that fear of God as a positive experience such that we have awe for him? Simply this, when you walk in awe of God, every part of your life is affected. I've told the story before, it's the one that I always go to for this, I have this picture, it's from David Platt. He says, what, ha what happened on a Sunday morning if, uh, if I were late coming up here on the stage when it was time for the sermon? You'd probably revert back to your college days. You know, if they have a bachelor's, you give them five minutes. If they have a master's, you give them 10. 
If uh, no PhD, you're out of here. You know, kind of thing. So you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, I come walking up on the stage. I said, oh, thank you for waiting. Thank you. I was on my way here out on C470. I had a flat. I went to change the tire. I accidentally stepped into the lane on C470 and a Mack truck hit me going 60 miles an hour. But I got up. I brushed myself off, changed the tire. Thank you for waiting. What would you think? Really? A Mack truck at 60 miles an hour? When we meet Jesus, we've hit a Mack truck of beauty and delight and glory. And once we meet him, it's an encounter that makes every step we take from that point on bearing glory. And our lives are never the same. We've been hit by a Mack truck of a savior, of a king. And it changes everything. Our finances are different. Our sexuality is different. Our parenting's different. Our marriage is different. Everything's different because it's been hit by a Mack truck called Jesus. But we get into these places where the scotch tape's pretty thick and we, you know, we'll make time for him when we have time. We treat him like a vitamin supplement to get us over the hump. I love the way Keller puts it in Hidden Christmas. This is sometimes what we do. If the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, was no more than the thickness of one sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. The diameter of the Milky Way would be a stack of papers over 310 miles high. Keep in mind that there are more galaxies in the universe than we can count. There are more, it seems, than dust specks in the air or grains of sand on the seashores. Now, if Jesus Christ holds all this together with just the word of his power, is he the kind of person you can ask into your life to be your assistant? Well, what does awe look like? What should it be? Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, the glory, the Mack truck, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Some translations say your reasonable worship. The point is this. If there is a God and he's big and beautiful and glorious, then the only rational response is to lay every part of our lives down before him and place into his healing hands. Any other response to keep God in your pocket or visit him on Wednesdays is irrational and makes no sense at all. So how's your awe of God? Do you live in awe before him? I sometimes think the part of the reason for the decline of the American church, especially among millennials, is because they've been part of churches like this who see adults being very good and solid people but they haven't seen much awe 
they haven't seen much sacrificial living. Giving so much money away that it hurts. Giving so much time away that it changes schedule. Giving so much to Jesus that it's radical. Imagine the growth of the church when there is awe of God. Oh, wait, wait. Have you read the book of Acts lately? Some of you came in today thinking, Larry, I hear what you're saying, and sin is denial. I get it. Uh, an unchecked sin in life leads to bitterness and evil. But Larry, you don't understand. I have lived so much of my life in denial of God lately. Do you know what God wants to say to you right now? He's saying, as soon as you looked at me and thought of me when you walked in the door, I was on your neck with kisses because I run towards prodigals. If you turn to him right now, he will remind you that he went to the cross to forgive your sins so that he could fill your every step with bare glory. If you run to him, not only is all forgiven, but you will again see the glory of Christ, which is what you were made for. Jeremiah makes this clear in, in the sermon in verse six when he says, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness? He's reminding Israel of this, that the way Israel and God had relationship was not that God gave them the 10 commandments and then said, keep them and if you're good enough, I'll bring you out of Egypt. No, backwards. God brought them out of Egypt by his power and grace and then he gave them the law and said, if you do this, you won't get hurt and you'll be different from all other nations and you'll be my witness. He moved toward them with grace First, it's always the instinct of God to run towards sinners who even glance in his direction. Would you again be broken by the grace of God this morning? I'd like to invite the servers for communion to go and get the elements. We're gonna come to the table that we're gonna call awe, and we're gonna be reminded again of how much God loves us and how that transforms the human heart to be touched by the grace of God. We cannot be good enough to save ourselves. Jesus did that. The Father sent his own son to bring us home. By the way, as they come, I forgot one thing. When I quoted earlier Romans 7 and Paul's struggle, you know, those things I should do, I don't. Those things I shouldn't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of sin and death, this trauma? Here's the last verse. I intentionally left it off so we could visit it now. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Communion in Greek is the word Eucharisto or the Eucharist, and it literally means thanks. And so today we have opportunity to refocus, to be recaptured by awe of the grace of God, to come to the table and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I'm yours.